0: Today, we're going to talk about the progressive case for school choice. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen-Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And as always, with me, my co-host is Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Well, listen, I'm excited about our topic today because one, I really think it's really important for progressives to have an answer to the conservative case right now for educational freedom, educational choice, giving kids more access to ways of learning that they don't have right now. And there doesn't seem to be a very good left of center uh, response to that in terms of like an agenda. It's kind of like the the response is, uh-uh, <laughs> no, you guys shouldn't have that. No, we shouldn't do that. Um, but you have a background in number one, in working with Democrats, number two, working on campaigns and helping you know, candidates kind of figure out their mojo on education. And that for me actually makes you a good person to talk to about, like, what would be a, like, if you were a candidate today, right, you were running for something, you live in New York, let's just say you were working, you were running for something in New York, you're Ravi Gupta. So you know a lot about this stuff or whatever. Why would you think it would be important? First of all, to have like something to say about school choice? I mean, you could just ignore it. Why have a progressive case for school choice?
1: Well, I think it's acknowledging the reality that already exists, which is there's just totally non-controversial forms of school choice that nobody seems to challenge, right? Like you move to the right neighborhood and the idea that like the neighborhood school is the thing that's almost unimpeachable within our politics, but the neighborhood school is a tool for exclusion as well. Like it, it, basically ties property value to the quality of your school. So people are buying into the right schools. So that's like, that is the most dominant form of school choice that doesn't seem to be up for debate in democratic circles most often. And so for me, it would be just starting from that and saying, well, if we're going to say that is okay then we should at the very least open up school choice possibilities for people who don't live in the fancy neighborhoods. Uh, and then if we're going to say it's not okay, well then let's have that conversation let's talk about how we actually can weaken the tie between real estate price and the quality of your school and perhaps open up enrollment throughout the system and throughout an entire state, et cetera, as some people have started to do. But I think you have to have one of those two worlds if you call yourself a progressive. You can't say you're a progressive and feel like we should have these walled off public schools in name only that are truly private schools and then say black and brown families can't exercise their form of school choice. So that, that would be the way I talk about that.
0: I would think that if you are a progressive person and you pay attention to education, you would already think that you have a lot of choice, that there is a lot of school choice. So public school choice right now is magnet schools charter schools. In New York, you have consortium schools. There are these things that are like open schools. There are just, there's this number of things that are already there that are considered choice. You just mentioned a barrier to that choice, which is we gerrymander the way that we enroll kids into schools, right? So they're not as open as we like to think they are, but you might say, well, we already have a lot of choice in education, not barring what you just said about like yeah, but you know you can buy into certain neighborhoods and you know your school choices get better than other places. Uh, there's this article in Education Next from uh, August 9th that talks about the progressive case for K-12 open enrollment. And open enrollment could be one of the ways to a progressive way to get over the hump of what you were just talking about like gerrymandering kids into two areas, right? So the article makes the case that, you know, there are already states that have open enrollment laws that allow any kid to go to any public school that has a seat available and open to them without care for the boundaries, like the district boundaries or whatnot. We have this in Minnesota and I w- would love to get your opinion on this as a form of school choice, like the promise of it. I could, I can, I'm going to tell you what I think are the, is the downside to it, but I'm going to wait until, you know, I'm going to run this by you. What do you think about opening up the borders? Open borders in education is a very progressive thing. Letting kids go wherever there's room for them.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think I mean, obviously, at, at at the base level, I support it. I mean, I've talked to parents like Kelly Williams Bowler, who've been arrested for crossing district lines to send their, her kid to the quote unquote wrong school. And in, in my state, there are districts like Rye, the Rye Brook School District, which charges over twenty thousand dollars if you want to enroll your kid in that district across lines. So that seems absurd—throwing people in jail or charging them twenty plus thousand dollars, preventing them from accessing a quality school if they can get their kid there just seems wrong to me but like the most pervasive form of this isn't like you know 20 miles away it's often like where I'm in Brooklyn right now like sometimes the difference of being on one side of the street or the other is the difference between an extremely high performing school and a school that is much much lower performing and often these are racial lines And the unspoken premise, I think, of of Aaron Smith's piece in Education Next is kind of like saying like, yeah, you know, Democrats in some cases have joined with Republicans to support some of the newer versions of these laws, but some of the worst offenders are in blue states. And I can only say like where I am right now, that's certainly true. Like in New York, like progressives are often some of the worst offenders when it comes to aggressively hoarding their privilege. But
0: tell me about Minnesota, because I, I, I don't I don't have a lot of
1: experience with these laws.
0: Well, first, I do want to pay homage to what you just said as the downside. So you mentioned Kelly Williams Bowler. And I think anybody listening to this who's a progressive person, the story that I'm about to tell you, you have to agree with us is wrong. So Kelly Williams Bowler was a mom in, I believe, Ohio. She used her father's address to put her kids in a school that was in her father's district that was a better opportunity for her kids. She got busted, basically, for what's called residency fraud. And she actually got literally arrested and put in jail for residency fraud. Not only that, it's considered grand larceny. Because as you said, Ravi, when you think about the amount that there's, they're saying you stole, That's above the threshold of grand larceny. So not only are you arrested for this now, now this is a grand larceny charge. This isn't some petty misdemeanor. This is where the story gets really sad. And every progressive person has to ask themselves, do I support a system that does this? So they couldn't get all the goods on her, so they put her father in jail. And her father was an elderly guy, and he died in jail, right? So when Kelly tells this story, she cries almost every time. Because literally, this is how her dad's life ended. And she feels a lot of guilt behind that, right? And when I tell that story, it sounds incredible to me. It sounds like it makes you incredulous. If you and I were at a party and we were talking to somebody about this, they would say, oh no, that can't happen. You know, that's not possible in the United States, right? That's not the way our schools are, you know, free and open to all. They're open to all, you know, must take all comers. So anyways, I I just wanted to stop on that for a second, because you mentioned her name. And I just wanted people to know how serious this is. If you look it up, School districts across the country hire private investigators to crack down on residency frauds. So in some, you know, very choice suburban districts where they want to keep the schools to themselves, islands of privilege, like you were saying, Ravi, some of the the progressives do in New York, they literally have people follow you home to make sure that you belong in those school districts. And who do you think they're going after the most in that, right? I'll just give you one guess. Who are they going after? Yeah. (laughs) White kids with two parents who are college educated? (laughs) Right. Right. Well, you know,
1: the starting point is that there has to be some suspicion, right? Usually like they they have to choose who they're going to decide to follow. And that usually isn't some kind of random selection process.
0: No. And these are public schools. This is why you have so many people who say they love public schools across the country, especially progressives. Oftentimes they're white progressives that live in islands of privilege, as I called them before, where their public schools really make them feel great about the fact that they've got their kids in a public school, but people like Kelly Williams Bowler have to lie about their address. So that's where this comes from in terms of open enrollment. Open enrollment kind of you know kind of plays with that issue a little bit by saying no, 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 no. In in Minnesota, you have kids in Minneapolis who, if they were just trapped in Minneapolis public schools, that would not be a great life for them. It's not the best school system especially for kids of color and and poor kids. It's like a lot of places. It, these are the schools that people left and abandoned over time, and they went to Edina and Minnetonka and Needon Prairie. If you look just, you know, one first ring suburb of Minneapolis is Edina. It's where uh, people with money go. It's where, you know, the, the the CEO of Best Buy probably lives, right? And that is a Tony school system right next, butting up against Minneapolis public schools, which has lots of poverty, kids not doing so well or whatnot. Open enrollment is supposed to solve for that. But I'll give you one thing that happened with open enrollment. It's really interesting, but open enrollment had a lot of, there were a couple of things. So the first one, Ravi, how would you like this scenario? Minnetonka, which is one of our Tony school districts here, it's like one of the, you know, the place where rich people live, their football team came to North Minneapolis which north minneapolis is the blackest side of town in minneapolis and they played the most black high school and beat them 54-0 the suburban football team beat the minneapolis football team 54 to 0 and when they looked at that suburban football team they had multiple players from the neighborhood of the team that they beat right so They were basically wooing kids from Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, come out to the suburbs and play on our football team and beef us up. They were putting barriers up for other kids to get in. They'd find ways, you know, it's too far away for you. You may not like it or whatever. So that's one thing. The other thing that they found is that there were a lot of white kids going out to the suburbs from the city. And there were a lot of black kids coming into the city from the suburbs. So, you know, the white kids wanting to get out of the black schools and get into better schools in the suburbs and a lot of middle-class black kids wanting to come into the city because it's where they felt more like culturally aligned with the student body, like they were in suburban schools. Not great for segregation.
1: Yeah, but you don't care about integration, if I remember you correctly. That is so wrong to say that. You have been a known skeptic of integration. (laughs) Uh, Let me rephrase that. You have been a known skeptic of the emphasis placed on integration as a tool for excellence.
0: Yeah. I mean, said differently, I don't think it's an educational intervention, right? Like if you want to disrupt kind of bad performance, I don't think that integration is the thing that raises test scores to the level that people think that it does. But I mean, bottom line, net, net, open enrollment, very popular in Minnesota. People love it. I just don't think it always plays out the way that people, it's not just like, Hey, you can go to any school you want to go to. Districts still play games. They still raise kind of bars for you to get in. I'll give you one example. Minneapolis, the, during their teacher negotiations for their contract negotiations one year, the teachers were asking For the school district to decline to take transfers of kids that had discipline problems to come into the cities, because a lot of suburban folks were sending their kids that had discipline issues into the city, and even some of their special education students. This is wrong on so many levels. (laughs) Like a teacher's group trying to get their district to put it in their contract that they won't accept kids who have problems from the suburbs is its own problem. Right. That just, I mean, I'm sure that makes your head spin one direction. I'm pro-union now. I can't like say anything about this, right? Like, you know, so I'll leave it to you, Ravi, to be antagonistic. Is that how you officially, is that how you characterize yourself now as pro-union? No, it's not. I find more need in them than ever before. Anyways.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, you sent me this, this article I had not seen, this piece from James Foreman, who I have a lot of respect for, is a Law professor who's written a lot about criminal justice issues, and he wrote a really good book called Locking Up Their Own, which I interviewed him about maybe a year or two ago. But he wrote a p- this piece that you sent me from 2005, which basically goes through the history of school choice as a concept and essentially says, look, like there are deep roots in the African American community, the civil rights community. Progressive communities and movements, like civil rights movement, like in sort of critical junctures of our, our nation's history, the concept of school choice was like prominent within left-wing circles. And he essentially goes through it all on many different levels, you know, everything from, you know, the Freedom Summer to the Freedom Schools to vouchers, et cetera, and talks about how. Actually, like this framing of of school choice as a right-wing like conspiracy is incomplete. And then he says, he basically compares like the previous versions of school choice that were prominent on the left to what we have today, and essentially says that progressives are making a mistake by just dismissing school choice as a concept outright. And what they should be doing is coming to the table and asking for certain conditions on school choice and helping to shape school choice in the ways that we're originally envisioned, including equal funding. So not just like providing vouchers, for example, that are below what like the private school tuition is or the equivalent public school is, but making it the same because that has all sorts of equity benefits. Two is not having admissions restrictions, which gets to what you're talking about and certainly has been a Source of sort of debate between me and anybody I've talked to on the right about the current versions of ESAs and vouchers. And then third is to have the goal of integration and equity in school choice. And if you do those three things, Foreman seemed to say, and this was back in 2005, that that would be like a good progressive version of school choice. Do you buy into that
0: premise? Yeah, I think it's history. Like when we talk about school choice, it's become such a conservative kind of hammer in the discussions that people forget that there's another lineage to school choice and they don't spend enough time thinking about civil rights history. And he goes all the way back. He goes back to like, you know, the first kind of people coming out of slavery actually started creating all different kinds of schools. Right. And this to me starts the black lineage of black educational choice and ownership, I call it black educational capital. Like how much of the educational process do we own to educate our own? And that started right after slavery. Between the end of slavery, emancipation and the early 1920s is the fastest acquisition of literacy of any human people like ever in history, right? So formerly enslaved people went from, you know, virtual kind of illiteracy being everything to reading at a pretty high rate in the early 20s, 1920s. And that all came from Black educational capital that was developed over time. There were the Rosenwald schools, there were Black boarding schools, there were Black church schools, but there was a lot of, this is the Black choice. This is a, you know what we did for ourselves. And he goes through a bit of that. And that never stopped. Like in the 1950s and 60s, you saw more kind of Black freedom schools And in the 1970s, you got to black independent schools. There was a whole black independent school movement. There's a book called We Are an African People, and it talks about the black independent school movement, right? So I've always talked about, I've been a school choice supporter for many years. I'm having problems with school choice people now because I feel like it's gone in a very white nationalist direction that doesn't include black people. As a matter of fact, it's antagonistic to our history, but that doesn't mean that we give up on choice. That doesn't mean that we give up on the fact that historically marginalized people should have the right to educate their children in the way that they see fit without disruption from the very government that actually oppressed them for for many years, right? So that's my school choice. That's the basis of my school choice. It's correcting a historic wrong. And that's still as real today as, as ever before. Our kids, this is something you might disagree with me on. But I can guarantee you that the, that the research will bear me out. Our kids were doing better before 1954 in terms of their uh, upward trajectory. And that's because before 1954, our kids were in the care of a seasoned veteran Black educator every day in Black schools in schools that were created in our communities by our community members. And, you know, when people think about that time in history, they think all those schools were terrible, right? It's a funny thing about Brown versus Board. They never made the argument that the Brown children, the children of Brown, were going to bad schools. As a matter of fact, their schools were actually had superior educators in them. They just didn't like being told that they couldn't go to the white schools that were closer to their house. But they they even say themselves, Cheryl Henderson Brown, who's from the Brown family that's in Brown versus Board says that we had superior teachers. We had great teachers in the black schools and we were learning a lot. The problem was that we had to walk miles to get to that school, even though there was a white school right down the block from us, right, that we could have went to. So this is really important to me, Robbie, for this reason, because I am antagonistic now to the modern school choice movement as it stands today, very right-wing, on purpose, funded and driven by Heritage Foundation and other foundations that have explicitly said that they don't want Democrats in their tent and that they want to be a white grievance movement, meaning we want to give coupons to parents and tell them you can get away from all that woke stuff by our version of school choice. I'm not part of that movement anymore. But I am with this this other thing, you know, with blacks, black educational choice makes sense to me. And progressives should support that. Yeah, I think, I think about this a lot. I, I, there's one,
1: there's one sort of, whole art line of argument that Foreman has that it might be worth us examining at some point, which is he, he argued that progressives back in the day were very skeptical of the system as a whole, including the public school system. And I think that's also wrapped up in the view of unions too, which were very much exclusionary during their early days. And there was a lot of racial tension around the role of unions and and he argues that today progressives are defensive of the system, and he has like a really interesting line of argument about that, and so we could stick a pin in that. I think about what you're saying around the sort of right-wing movement for school choice, and and I've, I've just been, I've been in the middle of it now for a little while of just talking to a lot of, like, conservatives, and then right wing figures and sometimes they're not always the same right like there are like small c conservatives who are like really believe in in school choice for what it is like you know like grant callen my friend in, in mississippi for example who i think listens to podcasts and runs in power mississippi and you know like goes to redeemer last time i checked you know church in in uh, in jackson mississippi which is like one of the true integrated churches in mississippi and Is somebody who I, from everything I understand about him, is like, has like a vision for, you know, like society that is not in any way hostile to most of like the big picture goals of most progressives I know. Like, he wants the city of Jackson to thrive. He wants people from different backgrounds to interact and be kind and love each other and grow up together and make their city and state better and all that. And then there are some people I talk to who are political operatives, who are selling school choice as an own the libs type of thing, or a way to walk back from our civic responsibility. And so an example is when I talked to Corey DeAngelis, for example, who I like. I respected for coming on and, and doing an interview with me, and and I, and I don't want to be that kind of person who like has somebody on and then you kind of critique them, but I'll say one thing that is that just stood out to me in that, Conversation ever since was that he was justifying school choice, and, and I and I and I I asked him to straw man like school choice generally, especially the ESA vouchers and all that, and he couldn't. So I then did it for him, and then I said, look, like one of the reasons why people would treat schools a little differently than Medicaid, Medicare, housing, and food, which are all voucher systems that. Progressive support is like one could argue that schools have a civic responsibility, like a collective. It gets it brings us together as a society and gives us a shared identity. And he was like, "That's precisely why we need school choice," because he doesn't believe in that shared identity. He doesn't believe that we should be going to schools to create that sort of shared experience. And you know, for me, behind that, I'm like, "Well, what he's really saying is, I don't want like the critical race theory, yada 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 stuff." But but he. I couldn't get him to outright say it. And that to me is like, well, I'm not sure that's the argument for school choice that's getting me out of bed in the morning. And, and actually, I'll go a step further and say, if the goal of school choice is to create a bespoke civic experience, then actually, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Because I actually think we, we need more shared experiences as a society. We need more sh- more shared sense of morality, more s- shared sense of what it means to be an American or a New Yorker or a Mississippian or a Jacksonian or a Nashvilleian. You know what I'm saying? I'll get off my soapbox, but this is where right now I'm not yet on the bus yet. I'm not on the bus for that project. I'm on the bus for, I think Grant and I, like Empower Mississippi, a lot of those folks, like I'm, I'm, I'm with them on a lot. But I'm not with some folks on like this idea that like it's own the libs anti-CRT
0: school choice. Like I'm not there on that. I think they're the same people. And that's why I left the movement. Because actually, you know, it's one thing to say privately to people, you know, I'm not with all that anti-CRT stuff and book banning and that stuff, you know, I'm, I'm conservative, but I'm not with that stuff. It's another to be celebrating the people that are actually signing that into law and celebrating them because they're giving you another policy win that you want, which is But I really want school choice, so I can't say anything about Sarah Huckabee Sanders for what she's doing in her state to black people on the day before the school starts in Arkansas dropping a black AP studies. Right. Just antagonize black people. Right. And all my school choice friends of yesterday just celebrating her without any kind of like feedback on the fact that the thing she just passed includes a poison pill for black education for black people to be educated how we want to be educated. And that's not freedom of choice, right? So all the marketing about school choice from the right side, from the conservative side, is about freedom and liberty and letting parents get what they want. And the poison pill is the same poison pill that America has always had, which is nothing that you're selling applies to black people, right? The pursuit of happiness Except for Black people, liberty and freedom from search and seizure. Except for Black people. But here, here's here's where I would defend some of those folks. Is like,
1: like some some people are out there doing work, and I know this is true in the criminal justice space. So I'll use that by analogy. Is like I know some friends who had to go to the Trump administration to get people out of prison, and they had to exercise a certain amount of sort of like. I have like I have got to be really careful about all the things I'm saying outside of this because I've got to do this one thing because people are counting me on to do this one thing. And so I think of like certain people out there who are Lobbying for certain education bills that maybe I we would potentially agree with, like you know Arkansas is a good example. There's a lot of stuff that they did in that state that I agree with. There's some stuff I disagree with vehemently, including what you just described. Now I have the freedom to say that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a political arsonist and is a nihilist and all that because I don't have to work with her. But if somebody has to work with her, it gets a lot trickier. But what I, I guess what I'm saying is like we all have to like for the good of our employees, for the mission we're doing, you have to balance like what does it mean to be like to walk away from a table or not. And I have at least some grace for people who are like, look, like if I've got to like pass a, a piece of education policy in Arkansas, I can't just throw barbs at Huckabee Sanders as true as they are all the time. I, 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 I'm I okay with that, I guess, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
0: I mean— I think it all depends on what you have to lose and who your people are. So I was in D.C. and I went to the Holocaust Museum. Highly recommend it. It was my second time going to it. and I hadn't been there in years and <laughs> it was just as impactful now as it's ever been. And I also went to the Smithsonian Museum on African-American History. Again, another jarring experience. I did them on two different days. And uh, going through them, actually, the one question that you have in both of those places is how could good people have participated in these systems? And I think more in the Holocaust Museum than in the African-American History one, because it's, it's, it's sooner, it's closer to now than the slavery example is. But Looking at the story about how the Holocaust actually was able to happen, it was like a frog in a slow boil. I always think that I know more than I do about these things until I'm in an immersive experience like that. There were just things about the Holocaust that I didn't know in terms of how long it took to get people moving a certain direction to smear the the Jewish people, right? And how even good people, including the church and business people and very pragmatic people actually all played a role in the softening of you know, kind of the wall of hating Jews, right? like they they all eventually kind of got there, but they didn't all start there. And it started with small things. But to my bigger point around like if I was Jewish, everything that had to do with anti-Semitism would be very serious to me. So you could say to me, "Listen, this politician is kind of anti-Semitic, but he's also doing some good stuff that I, I work on, and I would have a problem with that, right? Like, you couldn't, you couldn't tell me that you were getting some policies passed from this guy who's anti-Semitic, and I'd be okay with it, right? And that's, that's my point. I'm saying that from a black perspective right? Like saying that Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Ron DeSantis and Abbott in Texas and Reynolds in Iowa, you know, they're doing lots of great things for us on policy on other stuff. So I can overlook the anti-black stuff that they're doing is something that you should be able to say if you're not black, right? But I can't bypass that stuff. I can't bypass the fact that there are books that my kids can't read. I can't bypass the fact I'm not trans and I don't have a trans person in my family, but it's the same thing like with the anti-Semitism thing too, You wouldn't be able to get away with saying like, listen, you know, I know they're doing some, they're smearing trans people and they're, you know, uh, getting grievance against them or whatnot, but they're doing other good stuff. Now, this is far off topic in what we're talking about right now, but it is the reason I'm so animated about right now separating black school choice, because I am still for school choice. I just can't participate in that other carnival right now, that carnival that is connected to all the anti-black stuff it's not something i can bypass right but i do i can't give up on choice either though because i do know that there are millions of kids that still need something different than what they're getting right now in the traditional system and this is my argument with the left with progressives you are fine with that problem until it actually impacts your children right everybody's fine with a certain degree of somebody getting screwed somewhere until it comes home and when it comes to school choice the people who will tell you that you don't need school choice are the people who have it, right? And listen, I wanna to move to like The Progressive. Uh, the Progressive magazine had an article last year it was a bipartisan rejection of school choice. And there's no group more kind of against school choice than the progressive magazine. And it's all the progressive writers. And they say all the stuff that you would expect them to say that, you know, school choice is a money grab, that it's meant to destroy public education, that it causes and increases segregation, that it's just a way to get white kids into, you know, like white academies, and that that's the history of it. I think we disputed already in this program, that that's the history of school choice. That's one history. Like if you're a Milton Friedman fan, then you might think that school choice started there. I've never thought that. It's like such an expansive
1: term, right? School choice, right? Like, like we don't talk about educational, I mean, uh, medical choice, right? We don't talk about housing choice, right? We we talk about school choice as a very niche topic that almost is a moving target depending on the agenda of the person talking about it. But like Anything in this country, there is going to be a part of it that overlaps with one political party or the other and its movement, right? Like, and actually medical, you could, you could make an argument. Medical choice has a very similar history and one could write a paper. If you gave me 24 hours, I could write that paper. Now, I think the question is, this is like a a version of the genetic fallacy, which you talk about all the time anyway, right? Which is at least if you're going to make the genetic fallacy, make it in an expansive way, I guess is my point from the Foreman piece, which is if you're going to say the history is determinative of where we are today. then at least give us the full history otherwise let's talk about the reality today which is what you just spent the past 10 minutes talking about which is look there is a there is a movement today for school choice and there's actually multiple movements today for school choice let's talk about what those movements are and whether any of them have a seed of something meaningful to offer
0: yeah i think i've always been able to to have common cause with the school choice people that I don't have common cause with right now today, I've always been able to have common cause with them because the thing that they were advocating for had utility for my people, right? Like if they got homeschooling assistance, our our people could get homeschooling assistance and we could use it for our purposes. They could use it for something different. And if you look at the fastest growing group of homeschoolers has been for a few years, Black families going into homeschooling, for instance. And their reason for doing it is much different than the religious white kind of homeschoolers, right? So it wasn't until we started getting into this weird territory where they're doing things that are, you know, just outrageously anti-Black that I had to start saying something different about school choice. But it doesn't mean what you just said is true. School choice now means something very different to, to me than it did maybe if you asked me a year or two ago. But one thing that it always did, you're right about the genetic fallacy. The one thing that it always did make sense to me was that our history of school choice, and by our, I mean black people, our history of school choice hasn't been about wanting smaller government or wanting to destroy public education or any of that stuff. It's been about wanting to create new avenues for our kids to learn like getting into more places where they're they're not right now. And anybody who's listening to this, who's progressive, you are welcome to prove me wrong by enrolling your white kid in the worst performing public school in the closest urban school district possible. Do it today and you will prove me wrong. Enroll, stop, stop talking me to death about integration and about all these other things that you say you love. Enroll your child today in the worst performing school in the poorest urban district that's close to you. Do it today, and then I'll know that you are real. You're about your progressive bona fides.
1: Is that wrong? (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree with you. I mean, we've been through this before, I think, on the question of just progressives and, like, how do you dislodge them on this kind of stuff? I think it's, you know, you just have to speak to what makes somebody decide to be progressive in the first place, because I think, like you know we've now i think we we've now i think spent a lot of time on the flaws when it comes to school choice of both like i i hate to turn both sides but we've talked about conservatives we talk about progressives so i think the question is well then what what do we do and i think what i what i have chosen to do at this phase of my life is find the genuine people who are willing to change And try to get better myself on these issues every day. And then say, all right, can we form a new consensus? Can we change the conversation? It started to happen around housing. I've had some good conversations. Like Richard Collenberg. I interviewed him the other day about how actually there's been some movement on housing reform, which is actually key to school reform in many ways. And the Aaron Smith piece talks about how like, like there are changes happening on the school side of things too and opening up open enrollment. And so like the hope is that there are enough people who they may have their reasons for the ideology you may be conservative because you just distrust government or you may be conservative because you you know want the government to do less but you want them to do it really well and maybe the things you want them to do really well is public schools or you know medicaid or whatever and like maybe there's enough of these people who you talk to and you're like can we step outside of the culture wars and against the vilifying and Instead of making you feel bad for your choices, try to make you feel good about doing the right thing. And I, it's no easy task, but I feel like we've, we've tried the other way. Maybe, maybe inspiring people is the way to go here.
0: I am with that. Here's how I think I get there. First of all, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit on the progressive side if you want to improve choice. Like we have this other article here about Maureen Kelleher in Chicago wrote a piece in Chalkbeat called, I helped two migrant teens enroll in Chicago public schools. It was anything but straightforward, right? And it's a good kind of reminder that they're just bureaucratic barriers to success and equity for the public school system, right? Just enrolling in a school can be like a, an equitable process. That's hard. And everybody, left, right, or forward, should be okay with, let's attack those type of things, right? There are bureaucratic barriers to us having a school system that works for everybody. Let's get some of that low-hanging fruit out of the way. The way that we enroll kids, the way that we assign them to schools is unfair. We can fix that. That's fixable, and it doesn't require a whole bunch of political fighting to make that happen. The group uh, available to all, a group run by Tim DeRoche, uh, who's been on the show, is looking to take care of one part of that, which is the boundaries part. It's fixable. They have policy prescriptions for changing that. I would go a little bit further. Here's where it's going to get a little challenging for progressives. You have to give up on your islands of privileged schools, your schools that you know for a fact are only meant to keep you in the system or whatnot. There should be a, a good feeling about doing the right thing. Doing the right thing would be to stop having Tony public schools partitioned off from the rest of the, the district schools. We can get there by renewing the promise of of magnet schools. We can renew the promise. We can include charter schools into the public school choice schema because they are public schools and they are schools of choice. Progressives have to get over themselves about charter schools. That's a public school option. And right now, public school choice needs to sell itself, right? If you are so afraid of private school choice, you need to make public school choice the best it could possibly be right now, right? It's got to be Coke to the Pepsi. And Pepsi to the Coke. And right now it's just not. And, and the war against charter schools is a very big progressive cataract. It's like, it's, it's the thing that stops you from seeing the way forward, right? Because public school choice includes charters, magnets, open schools, pilot schools in Boston, these various types of schools that give new opportunities. Innovate that. Stop, stop being so defensive about everything else and make your product better. I hate to call it a product because people are going to get on me, but oh my God, it's not business. But you know what I'm saying. Well, I think like the the movement for ESAs
1: for vouchers, the sort of shifting landscape of the combination of AI plus a lot of the technological tools, that kind of disruption is just looming there. And like we've debated like the the valence of all of that kind of stuff, but if you're a true progressive who really feels threatened by a lot of that kind of stuff, The Overton window has shifted. Like, this is an opportunity to reassess the way you think about public charter schools. And in that vein, re-examine the the politics of it. Like, I, I invite people, I mean, this was definitely on display when we talked to Gary the other day, to examine who it is that you're afraid of when it comes to charters. Like, this is largely a movement of progressives and it's increasingly becoming a movement of progressives, uh, of very diverse backgrounds. And yes, there are foundations and billionaires behind that, but that's true of communities and schools too. Like look at who's donating money to all those organizations, right? Mackenzie Bezos just cut them a huge fat check, right? That's Amazon money, right? So Nobody's hands are clean to the billionaires. Maybe there are some people out there, but no major scaling organization, right? So... Put that conspiracy theory out of your brain and just ask yourself, who are the people in your city running those charter schools? Who's going to teach them? Most importantly, who's sending their kids to those schools and why are they doing it? Is it because they're naive? Is it because they're undeserving? Is it because they're the most motivated parents? Or are they just regular people? In some cases, people who are just fed up with their options, who are saying, oh yeah, that school's not bad. It's not, like to Gary's point, they're not always like this like, you know, chest-pounding... 100% proficient type of places, although some of those exist. They're just often better. Like, they're just better sometimes, often. Credo will say more often than not, better. Yeah,
0: but I'm going to challenge you on this stat, this last stat. They are better for black and brown kids. They're about even-steven for white kids. And what I said earlier about progressives, like they won't care until it's like something for them and for their kids... They love G&T, they love you know gifted and talented programs and IB and all that stuff and you know language immersion, immersion programs, blah, blah blah. But what you just said is true, and it makes it probably the reason why it's easy to attack charters, is because someone else is benefiting, right? What credo will say is if you are a black and brown urban child and you get enrolled into a charter school, you have a better shot at doing better in school, right? You have better outcomes. It's hard to get somebody else to care about that if you just you know listen. It's not only progress. It's not only conservatives that can be a little bit callous about things that uh, help the poor and or help kids of color. Sometimes it could be the the champagne liberals also who are a little bit callous about things that help us. Here's one thing. I'll I'll test this on you as kind of like a final thought. Test it on you. I think that the the liberal progressive cause right now is to make public school choice so good that it it keeps the families that they want to keep and they don't have to trap them in their schools. They actually are offering them a positive agenda rather than a negative agenda which is just trap them in there. To do that, they need to actually add to their care list things that they care about outcomes. They need to add the 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 educational interventions that they ignore right now. All they care about is input and money, but they need to start caring about output outcomes, teaching, learning, assessment, all those things that they feel allergic to right now, they got to get over it. That's got to be part of their, their keeping them. On the right, they got to do something different. With all this choicey world, they've got to get serious about civil rights protections, diversity, inclusion, equity, all those things that the left is so kind of dominant about that are falling out of the heads of people that are creating all these new school choice schemes, they've got to get better about civil rights on their end. So the two sides have something to work on and the two sides have something to offer.
1: Well, I would say the right also needs to to embrace outcomes too. In all these conversations I've been having with ESA supporters, and I've been as charitable and warm to them as I possibly could be, I'm often hearing, well, we don't want to test and I'm like, well, what are you afraid of? Like, you're afraid of the data? And I think it's this weird autonomy thing or Obama, Common Core conspiracy lingering, you know, distrustful of the federal government. But in this case, it's usually state governments. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just not with you. Like, like for you guys on the ESA and voucher side of things, those of you who are listening to the extent you care about my vote on this issue, which is irrelevant really, but just from an intellectual perspective, me as a stand-in for the best case scenario for you winning over progressives is me. (laughs) Trust me. Uh, (laughs) is, Is take one test at the end of the year. This is not like, I'm not waterboarding you. Just can your kids do math and read? If you're afraid of that data, I'm afraid of you. Two is... Stop selling this stuff as my kid it doesn't have to read about gay people, you know? Like, like, that's not, like, that is fundamentally at odds with a vision of school choice that's gonna sell a lot of us, right? Like, this idea that liberals are indoctrinating children and all this kind of stuff. Like, I can't, like, look, I have a lot of problems with some of the things that are lumped in with CRT, and you and I have addressed those on this podcast before. Like, this idea that, like, Isaac Newton... Because he might have been racist, that gravity's racist, whatever those types of weird arguments are, we've made fun of those. But at the same time, there is an overselling of school choice through some of these groups like Moms for Liberty as a tool to have your kid not interact with somebody who's politically or racially different than they are, and I think that's wrong. And that's where we depart ways with somebody like, for instance, Rob Pondicio, who will smuggle in his articles about school choice and CRT and, the you know, talking about the threats of CRT that we're teaching kids about climate change, for example. Right? We, we made fun of that already. Like, there's this sense that, like, teaching kids that climate change is real is somehow liberal indoctrination. I'm like, no, it's science. Like, I'm sorry. like, But that I, I'm just not going to I'm not going to embrace your moral panic over that
0: one. You sound very deep state right now. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Deep state. (laughs) Well, it's like, well, if if now, if deep state is a public school down the street that at least has some common experience for kids from different neighborhoods and political backgrounds, which hopefully different political backgrounds aren't in different neighborhoods, but of course in this country it's becoming increasingly, increasingly true that like yeah, I, I think it's absurd like that the San Francisco School Board felt Abraham Lincoln or Dianne Feinstein needed to be removed from a school school's name. Of course. Do I think that's an epidemic? Uh, me and a lot of these CRT panic artists will disagree on how widespread the problem is, but I can agree with you that that's a problem. Now, where I'm not with you is that like kids shouldn't learn about climate change, they shouldn't be reading stories about gay people, or even being introduced to the idea that being gay is like a common experience that, that should be celebrated or at least from the most skeptical tolerated, which I feel even weird saying, right. But for some people, they need to hear that. Uh, And that school choice is a solution to that school choice is a solution to kids learning about climate change or learning that, that there are gay people and they may actually be gay. Like, if you're like, if you think that school choice is to solve that problem, you and I are in different movements, you know?
0: Yeah. And I'll just say this to reiterate what I said earlier. I am really fascinated by what I learned in the Holocaust Museum, what I've always been fascinated about that story, and with the the slavery story. When I see things like the anti-trans stuff, and the anti-public school stuff, and the kind of just smearing of whole groups of people as part of a education political agenda, it kind of just lets me know right away, nope, don't want to participate in that. Like, I don't want anything to do with any of that. I see the signs. I know what that means. You can't make me be a part of a movement. You can't offer me a voucher because you think that I like vouchers and couple it with any of this kind of like hatred for specific groups. So, I will go with whatever education movement that seeks to educate all kids and seeks to educate all kids uh, fairly and affirming them, you know, that sort of thing. And just so happens that's going to be more on the left right now. But leftists, you guys listening to me right now, you drive me absolutely batty. And this is why I can't fully join you either, which is you have lots of good stuff to say about kids need hugs <laughs> and they need food uh, and they need you know shelter and wraparound services and all that stuff. I agree with you, man. They do need all that. They also need to come out of school capable of doing something, right? And if your outcomes are bad with all those hugs that you're giving and all that stuff, man, it's it's going to be as hard to join you as it is to join that other team because you just don't seem to care about our people either if you don't care enough to demand that they can read and write and get jobs and go to college and live, you know, good lives. So anyways, what's your final word on this, Ravi? The progressive case. Can you summarize it for us? What is the progressive case for school choice? Progressive case case for school choice is that people
1: are different. The New York Times asked You know, what is the purpose of public education? And they got like 20 different answers from 20 different people. People are looking for different things in schools, and kids are different. And often you live in a city where there are many different types of schools. We should make it as easy as possible for kids to access those different types of schools. It should help most people. And as we've established, School choice already exists for the privilege, just as it's extended to everybody else. And finally, if you're a progressive, you already believe in choice as an offering on most services that the government provides. You don't think that everybody should just be able, should have to go to one government hospital. You don't think that people should have to just be able to go to one government supermarket. You don't think that people should just have to live in one uh, public housing facility. By and large, on all three of those issues, we've embraced a system of offerings And actually, in all of those cases, for the most part, we've actually included private sector offerings in it. Now, at the very least, support choice through nonprofit public institutions, through charter schools, and through the weakening of school boundaries, so that you have a public and quasi-public version of choice. And yes, if you're radical like me, you can consider the private sector role in it too, but you don't even have to get there. Just Stay with us on this other part of it.
0: I'm with you. So that that to me encapsulates the progressive kind of case for school choice. So you've heard it here, folks. Ravi, who used to be the progressive, who's now to the, to the right of me, and me, who used to be the libertarian, who's to the right of him, is now to the left of him. But we both come to the middle on this. There is a case to be made for school choice. And progressive, you have to do a better job of selling your side of that equation. And if you want help, contact us. We're available. As we end this program, I want to say that every week we say that we really appreciate hearing from listeners. And we've been getting really nice email from folks. We got a long one and I can't go through everything that's in it from Catherine, who is a listener. And she says, you know, in every Citizen Stewart podcast I listen to, I find myself more and more inspired and inspiration is something I seek frequently. Since I stopped teaching special education for 17 years, by the way, three years ago and moved into a more of an administrative role, my inspiration, which is the kids, and the need to inspire the kids have been lacking. Your shows, as well as the reading I do, propels my momentum to change teaching and leaning forward for all children. Thank you. Uh, She gives us a lot more feedback in there. Catherine, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and everyone else. So guys, keep it coming. Send us more information, you know, feedback. If you like the show, if you think there can be improvements, we want to hear from you. Thank you so much. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branches podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.